You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Uh, If you notice the streamers and the lively colors, that was from our Christmas deal last night. Um, It was an awesome time to see the kids tell the story of of Christmas. You see the art and their stories and singing, and it was a fantastic time. So thank you, uh, Kayla and Leslie. I don't think you're in here. Are you in here? No. Uh, Kids ministry leaders, and uh, there you are, Leslie. You can wave. It's okay. You did an awesome job. Uh, she loves being in front of people and me embarrassing her. So, um, but thank you for that, helping us immerse ourselves in the story, this good news that we all share together. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter two. We're going to read part of the Christmas story this morning uh, from the shepherd's perspective. So Luke chapter two, starting in verse eight, should be on the screen or there should be a Bible around you. Or if you have a, a Bible, um, it'll be in there somewhere. Um, I don't know your page number, but... Um, it's 857 if you're using one of ours. Uh, so Luke, oh, is this me? That's the best part of the sermon. It's on the floor. Um, yeah. Uh, so Luke chapter two, starting in verse eight. Here's what it says. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And this is the word of God for us uh, this morning. One of of the um, maybe blessings or curses is when you don't grow up in the church. I kind of came to faith a little bit later is that you don't get so wrapped up in kind of the Christian uh, subculture. So um, I I know I can kind of mock Christian subculture a lot because I didn't really grow up around it. So when I see goofy things, I just kind of go, ha that's, you guys are weird. Um, And so I have an image for you to share just as we've been thinking about the subversive nature of uh, Christmas. I don't know how well you can can see that, but um, it's a beautiful picture of the nativity. Uh, We have Jesus with the golden diaper on the right there. Um, I don't know if you can see that very well. Um, and then we have, uh, which apparently is Joseph, who's German on the left, um, uh, white beard, nice German hat. Um, and then we have Mary, who's very white and, uh, and, you know, living in the Middle East, I don't know how she'd be that white. Um, and then we have the, the animals obviously looking 
looking on. And, uh, and, and I share that image because we've been looking at this kind of subversive nature of Christmas. And it's so easy to kind of look at these images and look at the things around us, even in our culture today, and kind of miss the plot and miss the weight and the, the beauty and what God is, is really up to in, in these Christmas um, stories. And, and so as we've kind of been working through these last four uh, Sundays of Advent, we've been looking at different images or different parts of the story and what they've taught us about, again, the subversive nature that the moment we think we have God nailed down or the moment we think we have Christianity nailed down, there's always these surprising things that jump out at us to say, actually, there's more going on than what we think. And so we, we've looked at Jesus as the light, the one who comes in the darkness and from uh, Isaiah 9 and, and, and these people living in darkness, but God coming to bring light, to guide them, to show them their need, to show them and, and, and put them on a path. But we also, if you connect that to John chapter 1 and his Christmas stories, you realize Jesus that came 2,000 years ago isn't just a baby in a manger, but he's the one who actually created the earth and created the world and created the universe, who holds all things together. He was the word made flesh. The word was in the beginning. He always has been. So we think of the Christmas story, we feel the weight of not only the Savior, but this God who created all things, who made all things, who's sustaining all things even now. And we looked at, Scott looked at the genealogies, and I know those are usually the part in Matthew's gospel where we skip over because we can't pronounce half the names. But when you realize as you read these genealogies, it's a very subversive text. Why is it subversive? Because if you were a Jewish person reading those names and those lineages and those families, you'd say, this is the Messiah's family line? What a group of ragtag weirdos. How can this be the family line in which God is going to save and redeem the world. A Jewish person, again, Matthew's gospel is very Jewish, reading those texts would go, Rahab is in here? The, what? There's women in here? There's ordinary men in here? How can the Messiah come from this lineage, this line? There must be something else going on because maybe God works with the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And then we, we saw Joseph and we, we learned from Joseph that there's going to be this Jesus who shows up and he's the God who saves us from our sins. And he's this Emmanuel, this God with us that there was uh, the, the people 2000 years ago living under Roman oppression and they needed redemption from the, the pressure of the Romans. But they also knew that there was this greater thing inside of every human called sin that needed redeeming, needed forgiving, needed cleansing. There, everyone lived in this other exile that God came to redeem and to restore and to make the entire world new. But he's also this God who's with us. The idea of a God who would put on flesh and move into the neighborhood and be among us and with us would have been scandalous to the ancient world. Yet here is God, again, telling this story to us of the subversive, weighty, beautiful reality of the God who comes with us, to us and the God who's with us, the God who saves us, the God who forgives us of all of our sins, the God who's making all things new. There's so much more in the Christmas story than you and I give credit. And yet this morning, we're going to also see a little bit more from the shepherds because I think the shepherds of all the characters and all the people and all the events are probably the most sentimental. Would you agree? If you've been to a Christmas program, right, the shepherd kids, right, they're usually wearing like a bathrobe of some kind, right? And my daughter was just in a Christmas program and had the little headdress on and, you know, just cute as a button, of course, and we love it. And we go, oh, my you know, kid's the cutest and she's the best and your kid's not and all that. But we all do that, right? We don't go for the other kids. Let's just be honest. Nobody's showing up for the other kids. You're just like, that's my kid. And when they do their thing, I'm done. I'm out. Okay. Merry Christmas. 
But there's so much going on in Luke's gospel with the shepherds that I think we can easily pass by and only think of it in terms of cute little Christmas pageants and bathrobes and set pieces. So what are some lessons that we can learn from the shepherds in our text here this morning? And I think one big lesson that we can learn from the shepherds is a lesson, what I'm calling in fear management a lesson in fear management. We notice the shepherds there. Uh, it tells us they're out in the, the flock doing what shepherds do, doing shepherd things as shepherds do, right? We don't have a lot of details, but you know that shepherds took care of, of sheep, right? And the angels show up to these shepherds. And then we read in verse nine, what does it say? And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear, And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, now there's this reality of fear. Now, if you're out in the field at night and an angel shows up, I think you'd be a little bit scared. (laughs) There might be a moment where you just go like, I don't know where this fits for my Friday night. Like I was just doing my shepherd things and now there's an angel and the glory of the angel showing around. We don't know all the details, but I imagine there was a sense of something more is going on here. And we know from scripture, right? We know from history that when angels show up in the scriptures, right? It's, it's a moment, right? It's a, a moment to pause. It's a moment to take, take notice. So there's a, a fear that's working in them in very obvious ways. There's something different happening here. They're just going about their lives, doing what shepherds do. And an angel shows up and fear comes. But you notice even in verse 10, there's already a comfort of trying to comfort even their fears. What does the angel say right right away? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angels even know these shepherds are scared. They're experiencing this fear of like, what is this? And and isn't it fascinating? You probably heard me say this. You probably can't talk, uh, heard other preachers or other teachers talk about this. How many times in the scriptures, the word fear not or be not afraid is used? It's a big number. I I counted all of them. That's what I do all week. Um, There's at least 500 references in the old and new. I didn't really, but I used some help. I had some help. But um, of some form of fear not, be not afraid. Isn't that interesting? That God constantly is telling, when God shows up and has something for his people, when he shows up to Abraham, when he shows up to Moses, when he shows up to David, uh, even here when the angels show up to the shepherd, there's always this word of, yeah, it's a little bit crazy and it's a little bit weird. Yeah, I understand, but just fear not, do not be afraid. There's more going on here. Just trust me in this. And I think this fear is working on on a couple different levels. Yes, there's the fear, like I mentioned, there's this fear of I'm seeing an angel. This is a lot. I don't know where to put this in the category of what just happened on my Friday night. But there's also this other fear that I think is working on another level. And there's a guy, um, his name's Kenneth Bailey. I've probably mentioned him a lot. Um, He's a a first century scholar, Hebrew scholar, and and he really digs into the background of the ancient world. And and it it was really important for me to kind of see this and hear this again, is that remember a shepherd in the ancient world. A shepherd was an outcast. A shepherd was the lowest of low. They were common. They, they were uneducated. That, that was not a vocation that you wanted to put on your resume. And so there's, I think, a fear working on another level is that if this is this Messiah that the angel is saying that you need to go and see this Messiah, if you're a shepherd, you're thinking, am I going to be accepted? 
Like, I know who I am. I know what I'm about. I'm not welcomed in most circles. I'm not welcomed to the party. And this is why this Bible scholar, this other Bible scholar, Jeremiah says, in Jerusalem, the times of Jesus, Jeremiah notes, the rabbis ask with amazement how in view of the despicable nature of shepherds, one can explain why God was called my shepherd in Psalm 23, verse one. Like we throw out that verse all the time, right? We have it probably on a t-shirt of coffee mug in our kitchen, right? The Lord is my shepherd, but a shepherd is the lowly uh, of low, He also says smug religious leaders maintained a strict caste system at the expense of shepherds and other common folk. Shepherds were officially labeled sinners, a technical term for a class of despised people. These were the sinners of culture. These were the outcasts. Now, when we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every Gospel writer has a camera on, and they're focusing on different angles of the Gospel message and the, the story of Jesus. And in Luke's Gospel in particular, his Gospel's all about the outcast. It's all about the poor. It's all about the people that were forgotten, the people that don't seem to fit in. And so here's the camera angle moving in to the shepherds and saying, here is the lowest of love. All the people that you could pick to, to make up a story of the scripture, the shepherds would not be included. Like if you were telling the story around the campfire, you'd be like, what? The shepherds are the ones that get the message from the angel? The shepherds are the ones that are going to go see the Messiah and, and, and follow where the angels told them to go? Are you kidding me? This makes no sense. They were the sinners, the outcasts of the day. And these shepherds living in the region, as it says in verse 8, would have known that this was the city of David. The city of David, Bethlehem, was an important place. They knew that royal messianic David-like lineage came from that city. They knew this was a serious situation. So to show up in that room, they're thinking, will we be accepted? I'm going to show up to see the Messiah, and will I even be accepted? I would be full of fear as much as any of you. Have you ever shown up to a party or shown up into a situation where you're just like, you feel so awkward? Hey, good news, it happens even as a grown adult. I remember years ago, my my wife, um, um, I'm sorry, different story, Um, years ago, uh, I got ex- I, uh, invited to go pray at this um, this gathering of mayors and senators uh, here in Kansas City and really just important people. And I remember just, I'm usually not scared of those kinds of things, but I got invited and they're like, hey, we want you to pray over the lunch and, you know, be the pastor, spiritual guy or whatever. And, and I just had this moment as I got up on the stage, I'm just like looking out there and there's like mayors and senators and I'm just like, I don't fit here. Like, I felt like that seventh grader, right? Having to go up to the blackboard and like do a math problem, right? Like, we've all had those moments where we wonder, do we even fit? Are we supposed to be here? There, there's a lesson about, about fear here. But, but what's so interesting is that you notice, even in, if you keep going through the text, is that even the angel is trying to calm their fears because it's reminding him of the details of this situation. And notice in verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. Lying in a manger. Okay. Now, how many times have we read that and go like, yeah, that's the Jesus story, right? There's going to be a baby in a manger. Like, of course. 
to a shepherd living in that region or any other ordinary folk hearing that a baby would be lying in a manger is to say, these are common folks like every woman who gives birth. This would have been absolutely normal. Royalty aren't born in mangers, right? If this was a, the king of kings in this, this, this big situation of, of riches and power, there would be no manger. See, a manger in the ancient world, there would be a, a simple two-room house. It would be a family room where you did your, uh, did your cooking and you typically hung out and often slept in. Then there would be a second room, a guest room, where guests would come in because it's a very high hospitality culture. So if someone's coming into, into town, they go into the guest room. And then you might have some kind of stable off the front of your house where your animals w- would live. And so when we think about the Christmas story, what's happening here when even earlier in the text, when it says there's no room at the end, when Joseph, when they show up, I know we think of like hotels and there's like a big neon sign, no room at the end, you know, and somehow they're getting shamed for this. That's not it at all. What's happening is this ordinary family, this ordinary home has been opened up. But what happened was there were probably people already in the guest room. And so where Joseph and Mary end up are in the living room, often where the animals would go at night because it was cold. But there'd be a manger, this simple little wooden box of some kind, some kind of stable looking thing with hay in it, just as we sing the songs. But it would be for normal Families that had babies, the whole village would be involved in this. It's not anything weird. But the angels reminding the shepherds there's going to be a manger. Guess what? They're just everyday normal folks just like you. It's a a moment of of gospel reality that that the gospels for all people, for ordinary people, for people that are on the fringes, for people on the the outside looking in, the gospels for people that know their weakness, know that they're lost, know they need a savior, know they need God's grace. It's not for the people that are all put together. And so here comes the angels to comfort even the shepherds in this moment to say, don't fear, there's more going on than you realize. And fear's been our challenge as a species since Genesis 3, right? When we lived in perfect harmony and humans, Adam and Eve, lived in perfect harmony with God and each other and creation, what's the first thing that happens when sin enters the world? Fear. They run and hide, right, from God. I don't want to be exposed. I don't want to be seen for who I really am. They're full of shame. They're they're full of, right, and yet even in their fear, what does God come and do? He comes and clothes them. He shows them, uh, even though you've you've rebelled against me, even though you said no to my authority, even though you said I'm going to do things on my own, he comes and clothes them with skins and says, fear not. There's more going on here. I'm going to make all things right. And we experience this fear because it's part of being human, this insecurity, this exposure, the shame that we feel, and we don't always know where it comes from. But when we stand next to a perfect holy God, that fear is going to be a normal thing. It's going to be part of who we are. We're going to realize it more and, and more. And, and even as the Proverbs w- would say, I love what it says about fear, and it says it a lot in Proverbs. But in Proverbs uh, chapter, uh, let's see, 14, verse 26 It says, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And so what God wants to do with us, what he wants to do with those shepherds, what he wants to do with everyone is not turn a fear of 
shame, insecurity. I need to hide uh, uh, what's going to happen, but a different kind of fear where we actually honor and respect and worship and love. The fear of God is the root of all wisdom and all knowledge. It becomes our confidence. That's why the angel says, fear not. There's more going on here. Just trust me in this. Just trust me in this. Imagine if if fear left us, the the fear of rejection and failure. If we were so filled with the love of God that it just went away, we just live with this constant, like, I'm just not measuring up. It's not enough. I'm just not a good husband. I'm not a good wife. I'm not a good friend. I'm not a good pastor. I'm not a good worker. I'm not a good whatever. Right? I just like there's some bar that we've set for ourselves, and I'm always just kind of right here. But, but somehow the, when the love of God comes towards us, when the love of God and his mercy comes towards us, all that fear goes away because we realize I have everything I need. Why am I setting some bar that I can't even reach? God set the bar and his bar is love and he's come and met me and he's forgiven me and he's loved me and he's given me a new life and a new heart and he's gets, called me child and a new creation. What if that fear went away? What if the the fear of circumstances in the future went away? That's why Jesus constantly talks about worry and anxiety, right? Because worry and anxiety is always about a future that doesn't exist. It's always about I'm fearful now because I'm thinking about the future and where it's all headed and it's all going to end badly for me, right? So he says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough problems on its own. It could go badly, but you don't know, right? But what if there was such a, a love that would come towards us that even the fear of circumstances, the fear of the future would go away because we know that God is with us. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Even death itself, there'd be no fear of death because we knew that God is with us, that God is saving us. God is making all things new. And so when the shepherds encounter the glory of God, they're filled with fear, which is obvious. But I think their fear is working on many levels. And the angel comes along to say, this gospel of good news of great joy is for all people, even shepherds like you. Do not be afraid. Just trust me in this. I know it's bizarre. I know it's weird. But isn't that how faith works, right? Like this is the shortest sermon you've ever seen with these shepherds. Like, like, how much do they know of anything? And yet we see, we'll see in a minute how they respond with praise and, right? It's like, I don't know what's going on here. All I know is the angel showed up and there's a manger and he's telling me not to be afraid. I don't know why we're chosen to do this, but we're going and there's something to this. And it's changing everything. And it's changing everything. Which leads us, I think, to the second lesson, which is a lesson about true peace. And this is very similar and again, I think when we think of Christmas cards, um, you, you probably have read this one uh, many times over. Uh, in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, maybe you've read this translation, peace, goodwill among men, right? This is kind of, a, kind of an awkward translation, but we've probably seen this on Christmas cards, right? This idea of some kind of nebulous peace. The Christmas story is about peace and peace for all and peace for every, everyone. And there is a, an element to that. But what is the peace that these angels are praising God about and singing about? Well, it's the, the reality of not this kind of like prosperity or, or easy living. It's a peace that comes when there's enmity or there's war, or there's separation. Or in the Old Testament, this peace of shalom, it's this wholeness of everything working together, spiritual, physical, emotional, wholeness, this expansive, robust thing that touches 
everything. Something is broken. There's separation. Something needs to be healed. Something needs to be reconciled. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Not just let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya. But we need a deeper, greater peace because this lack of peace in the world is because there's a lack of peace between God and man or God and humans. That when our relationship with God is fractured, guess what? Every human relationship is fractured as well. That's how the whole thing works. And that's the little joke in the irony of the universe. There's all this lack of peace because there's a lack of peace between us and God, which fractures all the human relationships. So there's always going to be a lack of peace unless something is healed and reconciled together. That we can't have it all. We just, we talk about, again, this, this kind of general nebulous peace, but there's a reason why we don't get along. There's a reason why we can't forgive. There's a reason why we can't reconcile. There's a reason why we put each other in groups and tribes and, and try to separate ourselves because there's a, a separation between us and God. Sin has fractured the horizontal and the vertical in so many different ways. So until we have peace with God, we'll never want to have peace with our brothers or sisters or our neighbors because they're still our enemies. They're still the ones that are after us because our ultimate peace isn't in God. But see, the, the good news of, of Christmas is that Jesus come to what? To see sinners reconciled as we sing about, right? That's what Romans 5 says, that great peace, chapter about peace. Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice and we, in hope of the glory of God. We jump down to verse 5, and hope does not put us unto shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for while we are still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to bring us what? Peace. Peace with God, peace with each other. That's why things are always tenuous. It's, It's why when our relationship with God, he is in our greatest joy, our greatest love, our greatest everything. What happens? It's something else has to fill the void. And, and what takes a hit often is the people we love the most and our neighbors and our friends and our, our co-workers, the people that don't vote like us or think like us or don't fit in our tribe. They become the enemy, right? And it all has to do with this vertical relationship with God. It fractures everything. And I think it's an interesting conversation because we can also apply this in unhealthy ways, even in a religious sense is that if I obey the Bible, if I go to church, if I'm a good person, God has to bless me, right? God has to give me an easy life, a good life. Some of us believe that's the good news of the gospel. It's not. That's actually really bad news. That somehow by my goodness, by my attendance, by my Bible reading, I mean, God, I read Leviticus this morning in the Hebrew. Like, I mean, if I'm not on your side, I don't know who is. So somehow we believe this gospel message. If I believe, I trust, life's going to go great. Life's going to be easy. There'll be no loss, no pain, no suffering at all. It's just all going to be a little nice climb up into heaven, and then we die, and it all goes well. But what happens in that way of thinking is actually you're still trying to control God. If I do this. If I'm good, if I read the Bible, God's still in control. He's not the one actually leading our lives. We're leading him, right? I do these things. You now got to jump through the hoop, God, right? 
So we can do that in a religious sense. We can seek peace in a religious sense, but we can also do it in a non-religious sense that I'm the only authority of God. I'm the only authority and God's not necessary. I have all the wisdom, all the power that, to, to live my life. But in both of these scenarios, we're the one that's ultimately in control. We're the one that ultimately sees everything and how things should work. And so this is a, a lesson as the shepherds encounter this angel. It's a lesson about true peace, that God has come to bring peace to the earth. But, but this peace comes through knowing this Jesus who's going to be born so that sinners can be reconciled to him. Because all the lack of peace that they're experiencing in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, is because there's a fractured relationship between them and God. That's the irony of ironies. It's like, man, I wish Rome would stop punishing us. But what Rome needs more than anything is to know God, to know that's, this isn't the answer. The answer isn't to oppress our enemies and kill our enemies. The answer is to forgive and to love our enemies, what Jesus came to promote. What's going on is why we continually see fighting and continually see war, continually see hate all over the places because this relationship with God has been fractured at its core. And so the angels show up to remind them that there's a peace that's available. There's something else going on here. Now, what's also, I think, important when we think about peace is that we're also called to be peacemakers. That if we have peace with God, we've received Christ. We said, yes, he is the Messiah. He is the Emmanuel. He is the Lord who saves. He is my, my all in all is that we're called to be peacemakers. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, that we're, we're called to be, that the Beatitude says that we're called to be peacemakers. Also the fruit of the spirit in Galatians says that, that we should have peace by the Holy Spirit. That should be who we are, not just something we, we have, because I think that's where it always stops. Well, I have peace with God, relationship with God. Good. Let's move on and go to heaven. But what about being actual embodied peacemakers because of the peace that we have with God? Like, that's insane. We should be the most peaceful people in the universe. Like, if we have this ultimate peace, as we know this God who's come to love us and forgive us and save us and redeem us and reconcile us and give us peace that we don't deserve, and then by the Holy Spirit giving us peace in our souls, we should be the ones who fight for peace more than anyone on the planet. When we've realized that we've encountered this God of peace, we've realized our flaws, our weaknesses, we surrender to our pride, that we can try to control everything, and this peace of God comes, we should be fighting for peace wherever it is needed. Peace among every race and class and family and neighbor, our own families. Because if you have peace with God, you can have peace with everyone else. You stop seeing everyone as your enemy. Like, which is just confounding when people come to Christ and then all of a sudden everyone else is their enemies. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, then what did God come to do, right? He, I mean, we, we've missed gospel opportunities and, and, and opportunities to share the good news, this really good news about a God who comes to bring peace when everyone's our enemies, right? Like, we expect everyone who's not a Christian to live like a Christian. Like, how, how does that work, <laughs> right? Like, we're, you know, so, oh my gosh, how can people live like this? And it's like, okay, well, they're not pronouncing the love of Christ. They're not Christians, so we're going like, should we be all that surprised? 
But yet we have this good news of great joy, this peace that comes that we can be at peace with, with everyone because God is our ultimate peace. Imagine a growing community of disciples living as peacemakers on the earth and more and more people embracing the gospel of good news and how much more peace we would see on the earth. And that's the good news. That is the good news. Subs being this competition between us and whoever else. And so there's this lesson that the angels want to teach us through the shepherds in their lives about fear and about peace. And, and just I just want to land the plane just with a couple of little implications that how, how do we get that kind of, you know, if you're living with fear and, and you know, maybe not experiencing the peace of God or having a hard time being a peacemaker or whatever, how, how do we kind of get that in us, get it in our hearts, get it in our souls, get it in our lives? How do we change kind of the fear the bad kind of fear into a healthy fear of God. How, how do we do that? How do we walk in this kind of peace that the scriptures talk about? Well, notice Mary's response. I got to bring Mary into the story. Notice what it says in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Treasuring and pondering, treasuring and pondering. I think it's a great little word of how do we get this word of God into us? That here's these angels that come with a message to the shepherds, and Mary's watching this as the shepherds show up into the manger where the Messiah is going to be born, and she's watching and reflecting and bringing it all into her own heart. Now, these are great words, pondered. I, I, we don't use that word enough. Ponder kind of sounds like a guy sitting, you know, kind of on a hill and just like, I'm pondering the deep things of, of the universe. But, but pondering is about how do I put this into context? How do I think, think this, this thing out? What does it mean? How does it fit with the other things that I know to be true? That's what Mary's doing. She's seeing all of this in front of her and she's trying to kind of think out what is going on here, connect the dots. What are the angels saying? Why are these shepherds here? What is going on? How does this fit in the rest of scripture, which Mary would know many of the Old Testament scriptures? How does it all fit? That's what pondering the word of God, it's the idea of meditation or musing or reflecting on, chewing on, thinking. You're, you're thinking about what it is, where it fits, its context. Why is this happening the way it is? Why is Luke telling the story the way he is? Saying that shepherds are welcome to the table. What does that mean? I love what Psalm 119 says about the word of God. Um, Psalm 119 and verse 30 says this, um, if I can find it, Psalm 119 is a long one. I have chosen, no, is that it? No, yep, that's it. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. No, that's not it. Um, I don't know where it is now. That was a really good one too. Um, but it has to do with giving light and understanding, if you know which, which verse that is. I wrote it down wrong. But, but this idea that it, the, the word of God gives us light and understanding to go like, what is going on here? Like we read these texts. It's like, how do we think about these things? How do we ponder these things? Where are they all headed? What are they all doing? I was talking with Matt even this morning, and we were just kind of kind of almost giggling, like not in a weird way, but we were, we, we, <laughs> and we were hugging each other and giggling. No, that's weird. Um, but we, we were giggling about how expansive the word of God is. The moment you try to understand it, the moment you think you got it nailed down, there's something that jumps out and you go, why is that there? What does that mean? Right? It's exhaustive, and we can never plumb its full depths. So Mary's 
pondering, thinking through all of this, trying to connect the dots. But there's an important piece of this. It's not just pondering. It's also treasuring. Because treasuring has more to do with the emotions and the heart and the soul. Treasuring moves you to living in action. There's something that comes alive and it's humming in our hearts. And, and when it hums in our hearts, it acts and we begin to savor this thing and taste this thing. It moves us into living and being changed and, and living in different ways. So Mary is taking what she saw and she heard. She's pondering it, all that the angel said to the shepherds. But now she's treasuring it. It's getting deep inside of her. It's changing her heart. It's changing her soul. And guess what? When she shows up at the cross a few years, well, many years later, you can tell she's changed. She's beginning remembering probably that day when all this was going down, going, there's something more going on here. Maybe all that the angels said about this Messiah, this Jesus is true. And as she goes to the cross and realizes in the empty tomb, it's all true. She's making, she's connecting the dots. With this Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart. It's when it begins to affect us deeply. And it's, this is kind of what we talk about, like preaching the gospel to ourselves, like daily. Um, just reminding ourselves of the deep things of God. What is true and what is beautiful and what is right. Um, my wife and I give us permission to do that to each other. Uh, we were having a moment. Um, I, I, I might have mentioned this. Um, pretty much since the middle of October, every kid has been sick and just rotation. And um, and we just got off like a, a sick rotation. And then on the way home from the Christmas pageant last night, uh, our daughter started puking in the car. Awesome. That's here or there. Don't feel sorry for me. We'll be fine. Um, I had a point to this. What was the point? The point (laughs) is giving each other permission to go when you're in that place of going, that's not who you are. That is not true of you. When you're feeling like I'm unworthy, I'm not living up to the bar, I'm not forgiven, I've sinned too much, I've fallen too short, I'm not a good husband, I'm not a good wife, I'm not a good kid, I'm not a good worker, I'm not this or that. I know some of us are going through school right now. It's like how, I'm just, I'm not smart enough, right? I'm not, everyone else is smarter than me. It's the permission to gospel ourselves and give us what is true and what is real in us that your worth and your value is not what, how many, what your grade point average is or how well you're doing in your engineering firm or how well you're doing as a mother or your father, that's not the bar. That God loves us in despite of all those things. He loves you because he loves you. That's about treasuring, getting it deep in our lives where we begin to actually change and live differently based on what we know is true by pondering. And I think it's important that we, we, we don't just hear and ponder because how many sermons have you just heard and gone, oh, that's nice and that's interesting, but we don't really treasure. We don't really get it in our hearts and our soul. We don't go further and go, let me get into that word. Let me think on it. Let me soak it and let me pray over it. Let me sing over it to let it comfort me and convict me and change me. Treasuring is a whole nother level, and we need both. That's how we fight the fear in our lives. Replace that fear with the love of God. It's how we fight that idea of peace, and not only experiencing the peace of God, but also being a peacemaker, is we need to ponder and we need to treasure to remember what is true and right and get it in our bones and our lives that it allows us to live differently, to live as God would intend us to live and be in the world. And so the question becomes, well, how do we know if that's happened in us? Is there any way of knowing this? Well, 
I think the shepherds give us a little hint of what it might look like, or what it might feel like, or what. And it ends in verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Like, this story just doesn't make sense in so many beautiful, great ways. Like, again, this is the shortest sermon. The shepherds have nothing. What do they have to go on, right? Out in the field doing my shepherd thing. An angel shows up and says, there's going to be a baby born in the manger. You need to go see what this is all about. He's going to bring peace to the world, right? He's going to squash your fear. He's going to, this Jesus, this Messiah, this God with us, he's going to do things that you, you can't even begin to imagine. It's like, okay, I guess. I, I, you know, I'm not even accepted at the table, so I don't, this royalty, this Messiah, you know, we're going to just show up and just see this baby in a manger? Okay, great. Let's, let's go do that. And yet something in them changed, right? That they go away. Like we, we saw, we, we came, we saw what the angel said, and this baby was in the manger just as it said it would, and we were freaking out, but now we're praising and glorifying God, going about doing our shepherd things, going back into life, changed. That I think the most perfect response is always singing, praising, thanking, praying, right? Like if it's real in your bones, what is our prayer life, praising life, gratitude life, look like? Is there just a constant awe and wonder of like, I don't understand all of this and it's confusing and there's fear in me and there's a lot of pain around me and there's suffering and there's mystery around here. But man, I'm just so happy that I could be part of this or play a little bit part in the movie. Like I'm just overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy each and every day, waking up, the sun's up, there's breath in my lungs. Yeah, I know the girl's puking all over the van, but praise be to God, we're going to be okay. And God is making all things new. I just don't hear that enough. I think our eyes and our hearts are so focused on the wrong things often. Small things that are passing away, tertiary things that are passing away. Like we get all riled up over things that just in the end don't matter all that much. Politics? It's one I hear a lot these days. About some dude who's going to get voted in and be gone in four years and die just like everyone else and this empire and right and, and yet all of our weight and energy and time and emotional energy is bent on that, forgetting the King of Kings who has another kingdom that's broken and who's redeeming and restoring all things, who brings true peace and true hope into the world and true salvation into. The world. I want to hear more of, can you believe we're part of this? More rejoicing, more praising, more praying. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, and I've been praying for you and I've been praying for me because I know when you follow Jesus for a long time, your heart can become numb to the things of God. It's just another Christmas. Yeah, my kid's going to go to the program. We're going to put on bathrobes. Hear that old story once again. But I've been praying for me, for awe and wonder, for for this reality to to just break in the joy of your salvation, to be renewed and restored and heightened once again, because God wants to continually do that. It's just normal human nature for us to kind of get in a rut, to kind of just go like, yeah, I've heard it before. Yeah, 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 yeah. But to go, are you kidding me? Like, are you, are you, like, huh? Look what we get to be part of. 
Look what we get to be part of. And then later, as we know the story, as Jesus grows up, um, I don't know if you caught in Luke 2, but the angels say this uh, word, that, again, another word that we don't use all that much um, in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Well, um, 30 years later or so, Jesus will be grown and he will enter into his public ministry. And John the Baptist comes on the scene in John chapter uh, 1. And he says these, these words in John chapter uh, 1 verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for his purposes I came baptized in the water that he might be revealed to Israel. He on whom you see the Spirit descended and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that he is the Son of God, that this Jesus would, would come. And the angel said, behold, take notice, look, examine, consider, right? And here comes John preaching this message, this forerunner going, behold, look, consider the one who takes away the sins of the world. What you need, Israel, and what you need, Gentile, what you need, world, is to have our sins forgiven, to be redeemed, to be reconciled back to God. Take a look, examine, consider all that's going on. These stories seem crazy, but I want you to look at them again. I want you to consider their context because every Every week we have this great privilege and joy to tangibly experience what it was all headed was that God would come and to lay his life down and he would break his body represented by the bread and he would pour out his blood represented by the cup to cleanse us, to forgive us, to allow for us to come to the, to the throne room of, of grace and to experience God's goodness and mercy in our lives and to remember that God is making all things new when it seems like the bad guys are winning. Behold, the baby that would grow up to be the lamb, the perfect spotless lamb. And I love that imagery of lamb because Jesus became our scapegoat, the one who was sent out, sent away so that the sins of the world could fall on him. Do you remember in the Old Testament when the scapegoat would be sent out into the wilderness? separate from the people, all the sins of the world falling on him so that we could come in, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be clean.